Hello and welcome. As you might have guessed from the title, this is a one-off experience of remembering Afghanistan through the eyes of a particular man called Robert Fisk, a war journalist. I feel this is important especially with what has happened recently and how it has captured the attention of the world. I know that within the media, places like Afghanistan where a war has been happening for about 20 years would fade in and out of existence in our collective minds largely depending on what happens there and on what is deemed newsworthy. But just as a warning, there will be uh, rather vivid descriptions of a violent nature, although I hope to also relay some of its beauty to you. Now I will begin this first part by saying a few words about the book and Robert Fisk as a journalist, then I will lay the groundwork in discussing Afghanistan's recent history to provide some context before diving into Fisk's experiences in Afghanistan. Lastly, I have placed in the notes some links to charities you can donate to that are doing excellent work to help the people there, as well as the refugees who are seeking a safe life for themselves and their families. I remember when I was maybe 14, 15 years old, something along those lines, I was in a local library. You know, that place where all the popular teenagers go to hang out. And I was looking at the history section, the part where they had all sorts of books on on the Near East and Asia and and so on. And there I saw a massive book, more than a thousand pages long, with a very distinct white cover. And it was dramatically titled, The Great War for Civilization, The Conquest of the Middle East, and written by a man called Robert Fisk. He was a war journalist who covered conflicts in the Near East and other parts of the world for around 30 years, and this book was meant to be his own experiences throughout his work, unfiltered and unedited, without the sanitization that was applied to his newspaper articles. Now I never borrowed it because it was honestly intimidating at that time, so I sort of shoved it away in my memory and went on to read other things. But now, with my efforts to read more non-fiction, this book suddenly resurfaced in my mind, and I bought it. I haven't finished it yet, but I think I have a long way to go, but somewhere on the back, this book is described as a tome and a testament of Robert Fisk, and that is an accurate description. The visceral details he goes into, his emotions, everything about it shows a man who lived an incredible life, a man who had deep moral convictions, a critical mind, and a dose of cynicism, who had a career for about as long as my entire lifetime. His testament has a certain quality, that no matter how evil or villainous someone seems to be, Fisk always manages to capture their humanity, describing facial expressions and mannerisms. He makes you realize that behind the people he met, who many would describe as evil today, there was a human being, And most of the time it makes me feel disturbed more than sympathetic, rather than thinking that this person who hanged people in their hundreds or that person who ordered people to be tortured were like anyone else. It led me to think of how we as people can go as far as they can. What would it take? How strong in your convictions do you have to be that you are driven to kill and maim and torture without question? It reminds me of the idea of the banality of evil. But he also met ordinary everyday people, fellow journalists, civilians, aid workers, and even soldiers just doing their job. 
It is both beautiful and tragic, and we will certainly see both later. Equally as important is the number of places he has been to when history was being made. He wrote about Iran during the Islamic Revolution. He wrote about Iraq and its war with Iran. He wrote about Lebanon during its bloody civil war. He wrote of Palestine and Israel. And of course, he wrote of Afghanistan. He was there when the Soviet Union invaded, and he returned when it withdrew. He personally interviewed Osama bin Laden there before the September 11 attacks, and he was there when the United States invaded in response to the September 11 attacks. And this is what we are remembering today with the late Robert Fisk, Afghanistan as described and experienced through his incredible mind. I want to begin with a little extract from the introduction of Fisk's tome or book. I chose this particular section because I think it encapsulates the essence of his work. It will give you an idea of his beliefs, the extent of his career as a war journalist, the language he uses, and the vivid images that he painted with his words. On a mountaintop in Afghanistan, I sat opposite Osama bin Laden in his tent as he uttered his first direct threat against the United States, pausing as I scribbled his words into my notebook by paraffin lamp. God and evil were what he talked to me about. I was flying over the Atlantic on 11 September 2001. My plane turned around off Ireland following the attacks on the United States, and so less than three months later I was in Afghanistan fleeing with the Taliban down a highway west of Kandahar as America bombed the ruins of a country already destroyed by war. I was in the United Nations General Assembly exactly a year after the attacks on America when George Bush talked about Saddam's non-existent weapons of mass destruction and prepared to invade Iraq. The first missiles of that invasion swept over my head in Baghdad. The direct physical results of all these conflicts will remain, and should remain, in my memory until I die. I don't need to read through my mountain of reporters' notebooks to remember the Iranian soldiers on the troop train north to Tehran, holding towels and coughing up Saddam's gas in gobs of blood and mucus as they read the Quran. I need none of my newspaper clippings to recall the father, after an American cluster bomb attack on Iraq in 2003, who held out to me what looked like a half-crushed loaf of bread, but which turned out to be half a crushed baby, or the mass grave outside Nasiriya, in which I came across the remains of a leg with a steel tube inside and a plastic medical disc still attached to a stump of bone. Saddam's murderers had taken their victims straight from the hospital where he had his hip replacement to his place of execution in the desert. I don't have nightmares about these things, but I remember. The head blasted off the body of a Kosovo-Albanian refugee in an American air raid four years earlier, bearded and upright in a bright green field as if a medieval axeman has just cut him down. The corpse of a Kosovo farmer murdered by Serbs, his grave opened by the UN so that he re-emerges from the darkness, bloating in front of us, his belt tightening viciously around his stomach, twice the size of a normal man. The Iraqi soldier at Fao during the Iran-Iraq war, who lay curled up like a child in the gun pit beside me, black with death, a single gold wedding ring glittering on his left hand. 
bright with sunlight and love for a woman who did not know she was a widow. Soldier and civilian, they died in their tens of thousands because death had been concocted for them. Morality hitched like a halter round the war horse so that we could talk about target-rich environments and collateral damage, that most infantile of attempts to shake off the crime of killing and report the victory parades, the tearing down of statues and the importance of peace. Governments like it that way. They want people to see war as a drama of opposites, good and evil, them and us, victory or defeat. But war is primarily not about victory or defeat, but about death and the infliction of death. It represents the total failure of the human spirit. I know an editor who has wearied of hearing me say this, but how many editors have first-hand experience of war? When I read that part of the introduction, I knew I was in for a journey. Notice how Fisk picks examples of tragedy and violence committed by multiple sides and does not lay the blame squarely on one group of people. He talks about the failure of the human spirit, not of the savagery of one particular race or nationality over another. And there are two other reasons I chose this little section to recite. Firstly, is what Fisk mentions at the very beginning, his encounter with Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, and this would not be the first time he had met him. This figure, which would become infamous in the collective imagination of many people, was instrumental in the destiny of Afghanistan as a whole, which brings me on to the second reason I chose this section. Fisk's description of the United States bombing Afghanistan as a country already destroyed by war. We have here an allusion to Afghanistan's history, a tragic history, because Fisk is most likely talking about the Soviet invasion from 1979 to 1989, but could just as easily be talking about numerous invasions of this country over the last three centuries. When you look at it on a map, Afghanistan does not seem to stand out, a landlocked territory lovingly described by Fisk as a box of deserts, soaring mountains and dark green valleys. It is surrounded by Iran and Pakistan to the west and southeast, respectively, a very narrow border with China to the east and the Central Asian nations of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan to the north. For centuries, it has been a cultural meeting point or a nexus between the Middle East, Central Asia, and Far East Asia. But Afghanistan also has a nickname that in one sense is ominous and in another quite proud. It is the graveyard of empires. Though the origin of this label is not known, it is owed to the fact that various powers have tried and failed to hold it. This includes Russia and Great Britain during their imperial years in the 19th century. But given that Fisk's career in Afghanistan and Osama bin Laden's journey are both during the Soviet Union's invasion in 1979, or the Cold War years, this will be a natural starting point. I want to defer for a moment to historian Peter Frankopan, who has written a great book titled The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, in which he covers Afghanistan a little bit, and from which I have learned quite a lot. If Fisk is the on-the-ground, person-to-person, human type of experience, then Peter Frankopan is a bigger-picture geopolitics type. In the past, Afghanistan had the misfortune of being like this piece of land that was stuck in between 
empires. In this particular case, it was the Russian Empire and one of the British Empire's most prized possessions, India. We have to remember here that India, before 1947, also included Bangladesh and Pakistan as a whole. And so you can imagine it being a place that these two old powers kept an eye on. And whenever one would make a move to have some influence there, as they often did, then the other might become suddenly nervous. And this resulted in the First and Second Afghan Wars in 1842 and 1868. British diplomats called this the Great Game, possibly referring to the rivalries of the European imperial powers over their imperial territories. Britain, France and Russia, uh, although they would be allies in the First World War, also really mistrusted each other and were rivals in the imperial sense. However, despite the term Great Game, there is nothing playful about an entire British army being annihilated in the Kabul Gorge in 1842. Something, by the way, that some Afghans, or many Afghans, are aware of to this day. It was quite literally caught in the middle. And the reason I mention this detail is because, tragically, and as is often the case, history has repeated itself. In the 20th century, instead of being caught between the Russian Empire and the British Empire, Afghanistan now found itself caught between the Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviet Union at the time included the Central Asian nations that border Afghanistan to the north, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, and to the north of those, and bordering all of them, sits Kazakhstan. So you can imagine Afghanistan sitting at the underbelly of this gigantic Soviet Union, as uh, Frank Kapan describes it. In a way, the Soviet Union can be viewed as a modern Russian empire in its own right, with the power concentrated in Russia. And from the 1950s, during these Cold War years, they were testing ICBMs, or intercontinental ballistic missiles, that had the ability to carry nuclear warheads for thousands of miles. The place they chose to test the range of these missiles was on the Central Asian steppes in the south of Kazakhstan vast open spaces away from urban centers that allowed clear radio communication between their monitoring posts. To this day, this place is used for military operations and has been leased out for the Russian space program, the Baikonur Cosmodrome. The United States, the superpower rivals to the Soviet Union, and in a sense an empire in their own right, had listening posts of their own, as nearby as they could get them, so that they had an early warning system should the Soviet Union decide to use these missiles to attack. And we should remember here that the fear of all-out nuclear Armageddon was a very real thing from the 50s and I believe very well into the 70s and the 80s. So these listening posts were in the north of Iran, manned by the uh, CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. But then something happens, and everything begins to change. The year is 1979. A revolution in Iran overthrows the despot Shah Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, who was placed there by the United States and the United Kingdom to protect their own interests. And the new regime, which was understandably resentful of the West, in quotation marks, and its meddlings, dismantled all these listening posts and forced all American diplomats and staff out. Now, as is typical of governments born after revolutions, this new regime in Iran was brutal in its own right, and Fisk would be present during the early years 
when they sentenced hundreds, perhaps thousands of people, to death in mock trials. Iran is also important because it is the site of the Islamic Revolution, and now we're talking about here political Islamism, which will have some influence on Afghanistan later on. Now, Afghanistan itself, which was next door, suddenly became very important. In fact, the CIA would carry out a survey to examine how suitable it would be as a place to plug the gap in intelligence since the events in Iran. It could be a place that could have listening posts. But the situation there was fast-moving and very unstable. There were a series of governments being overthrown. First you had Shah Zahir or Zahir, or King Zahir, overthrown by his nephew, Muhammad Dawood, in 1973. Five years later, just before 1979, Muhammad Dawood is overthrown by communist hardliners led by Nur Muhammad Taraki. The year of 1979 would be the most unstable yet, as the government will change hands two more times before the year is out. Taraki would suddenly die, believed to be murdered by his rival, Hafizullah Amin, who would take over, and the government would generally set out on a very ambitious campaign to modernize the country by breaking its feudal tribal system and delivering things like rights for women in education, better job security and healthcare. But all that seemed to do is unite people like their traditionalists, their religious clerics, tribal leaders, under the common cause of resisting these ideas that they saw as foreign to their tradition and invasive. And you have this image of the Afghan government trying to drag a group of people kicking and screaming into modernity. But make no mistake, and Fisk does mention this, the movers and shakers in Afghan society did not just rule by consent and popularity themselves. They themselves were brutal, as we will come to discover, and would murder teachers for daring to teach in mixed-sex schools at the time. And as is typical of societies that have been under repressive regimes, there is no single opposition, so to speak. The people who would go on to rebel would have their reasons. Yes, some of them did not want the progressive so-called Western policies. Others resented the government's tyranny, its execution of political prisoners, and general repression. In a society of people, there is more than one person who has ideas on how to fix it. Now, the United States, which you can imagine is looking intently there, is getting increasingly worried. Would the Soviets themselves invade? Would that mean no early warning system for them? In February 1979, in Kabul, the situation suddenly becomes worse. The American ambassador to Afghanistan, Adolf Dubs, gets kidnapped from an armored car in broad daylight. He gets taken to a hotel, and when the rescue attempt goes horribly wrong, he gets killed. And that is the point at which the United States decides to stop all aid to Afghanistan and to start supporting any form of resistance to the regime there. In March of 1979, there would be an uprising in the city of Herat, much inspired by the revolution in Iran, which I mentioned earlier, against what they saw as outside influence in these so-called progressive policies that the government was proposing. They would turn on and kill Soviet residents in the city. In Jalalabad, Afghan military units refused to fight the resistance and turned on their Soviet advisors, killing them. An entire military unit would hand its weapons over to rebels in the Wardak region as the army began to disintegrate before the government's very eyes. Hafizullah Amin would see the situation get much worse and would turn to the Soviet Union for aid. His faith in them until his death never wavers. 
Throughout that year, the Soviet Union began helping the Afghan government by first of all shipping grain and food, and then moving on to weapons. On the 27th of December 1979, they finally answered Hafizullah Amin's call by sending a detachment of Spetsnaz special forces. They assaulted his presidential palace, and the account of his death, summed up as being killed by a burst of gunfire, is quite murky. According to Fisk, a Soviet military intelligence officer would tell him years later that Amin was mistakenly shot and the Soviets tried to save him, but he did not make it. A different theory is that the Soviet Union was fed up with him and wanted him removed. Either way, the Soviet Union effectively installs Babrak Karmal as the next leader, a lawyer who had taken refuge in Moscow earlier. Fisk would actually describe Babrak Karmal as the Trojan horse through which the Soviets can claim that Afghanistan has been liberated from tyranny, the tyranny of Hafizullah Amin. Within the first week of January 1980, Soviet troops would begin to pour into Afghanistan. The Soviet-Afghan war has begun. Journalists like Robert Fisk have a knack for sensing where history is being made, especially when it comes to things like wars. Even with the danger that comes with it, we will find that Fisk seems to run at it head first in order to wage a war of his own, a war for the truth. So it is within the first week of January that he makes his way to Afghanistan also, and he recalls his first impressions as the plane descends onto Kabul airport. Afghanistan was cloaked in snow, its mountain ravines clotted white and black with rock. From 10,000 feet, I could see tiny Soviet helicopters turning the corners of the great gorges south of Kabul, fireflies dragging a brown trail in their wake. The airport was now a military base, the streets of the capital a parking lot for Soviet armour, and those were not just Russian conscripts. The new ASU-85 infantry fighting vehicle belonged only to the Soviet Union's top divisions. Many of the soldiers held the newest version of the Kalashnikov rifle, the AKS-74. North of the city, the 105th Airborne Division had quite literally dug a maze of trenches, miles in length, across the plateau beneath the mountains. From a distance, they looked like soldiers standing along the front lines of the Western Front in this old sepia photographs which my father had taken 62 years earlier. Their commanders have been hoping that this was the only obvious parallel between the two military campaigns. He is here referring to, of course, the First World War. Uh, his father was a combatant in it, and in fact was awarded a medal inscribed with the Great War for Civilization, as this is what the First World War was thought of, and that's what inspired the title of his book. But to, uh, to carry on. When the Russians stopped my taxi, they stared at my passport, frowning. What was an Englishman doing in Kabul? At the Intercontinental Hotel, on the lower hill above the city, there was no such puzzlement. The Afghan reception staff were all smiles, discreetly moving their eyes towards the plainclothes Afghan cops lounging on the foyer sofas so that guests would know when to lower their voices. The intensity with which men from the Khad, the Khadamat Ittalati Dawlati, or the State Information Services, would watch us was fortunately only matched by their inability to speak much English. The bedrooms were warm and the balconies a spy's delight from mine. 
room 127. I could look out across all of Kabul, at the ancient Balahisar fort, and the airport. I could count the Soviet jets taking off into the afternoon sun, and the explosions echoing down from the Hindu Kush, and then the aircraft again, as they glided back down to the runways. Now Fisk would meet up with other journalists. You had Connor O'Cleary of the Irish Times, Gavin Hewitt, a BBC reporter, and his camera team, the sound man Stephen Morris, cameraman Mike Vinnie, and the film editor Jeff Hale. And together they find an old, yellow, beaten-up Peugeot taxi, being driven by an Afghan local who Fisk names as Mr. Samadali, and on the bright winter morning of the 9th of January, 1980, with all of them packed in, they would drive east, out of Kabul, and in the direction of Jalalabad, to watch the invasion, as Fisk puts it, driving amidst the tide of Soviet tanks and military vehicles pouring in, from the Soviet frontier in the north, towards the Pakistani border to the southeast. And the reason I mention all of these people by name, in this old beat-up taxi, is because from this taxi, they would film the first images of the Soviet invasion to be recorded, the biggest military operation that the Soviet Union would undertake since the Second World War. We headed east towards the Kabul Gorge, deep into the crevasse at the foot of the Springar Mountains. The Soviet army was making its way down to Jalalabad, and we threaded our way between their great T-72s, which are tanks, and their armoured vehicles, each machine blasting hot black smoke onto the snow from its exhausts. And beside the highway, the Afghan men watched, their faces tight against the cold, their eyes taking in every detail of every vehicle. They looked on without emotion as the wind tugged on their orange and green shawls and gowns. The snow spread across the road and drifted at their feet. It was two degrees below zero, but they had come out to watch the Soviet army convoy hum past on the great road east to the Khyber Pass. The Russian crews, their fur hats pulled down low over their foreheads, glanced down at the Afghans and smiled occasionally as their carriers splashed through the slush and ice on the mud-packed road. A kilometre further on, Soviet military police in canvas-topped jeeps waved them into a larger convoy in which more tanks and tracked armour on transporter lorries raced along the Jalalabad highway. They were in a hurry. The generals in Kabul wanted these men at the border with Pakistan, along the Durand line, as fast as they could travel. Secure the country. Tell Moscow that the Soviet army was now in control. Now Fisk and his crew had essentially bluffed their way out of leaving Kabul during the invasion. He described how, as they were still within the suburbs of Kabul on the way out, they got stopped by a police checkpoint, asking them where they were going. And Hewitt, the BBC man, innocently said they are just touring the city, and once they were on the highway east of Jalalabad, it seemed that the military police officers at the checkpoint just assumed they had been given permission to leave, so it was very much a stroke of luck. What was not allowed, however, was filming and reporting. But this old yellow taxi was chosen because it was made for their mission. If you ever visit places like Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, parts of Southeast Asia, you will either love or hate the decorations that taxi drivers put in and around their cars. In the case of this taxi, it had these plastic curtains made of flowers and greenery on the windows. It does sound tacky, but it came in very useful. 
So as Mr. Samadali swerved his way through the tanks and the vehicle carriers, being forced to drive at 80 kilometers per hour in the blizzard, lest they all be crushed by the Russian convoy, Fisk and his colleagues begin filming as discreetly as they can. Packed into Mr. Samadali's cramped Peugeot, we were recording history. Steve and Jeff sat in the back, with the mic sandwiched between them, hugging the camera between his knees, as Gavin and I watched the Soviet troops on their trucks. The moment we knew no one was looking at us, I'd shout, Go! And Gavin cried, Picture! At this point, he and I would reach out and tear apart the curtain of plastic flowers and greenery. Mike would bring up the camera, the lens literally brushing the sides of our necks in the front, and start shooting through the windscreen. Every frame counted. This was the biggest Soviet military operation since the Second World War, and Mike's film would not only be shown across the world, but stored in the archives forever. The grey snow, the green of the Soviet armour, the dark silhouettes of the Afghans lining the highway. These were the colours and images that would portray the start of the invasion. A glance from a Russian soldier, too long a stare from a military policeman, and Gavin and I would cry down. Mike would bury his camera between his legs, and we would let the artificial foliage flop back across the inside of the windscreen. We all agreed, if we kept our cool, if we didn't become overconfident, if we were prepared to lose a beautiful shot in order to film again another day, then we'd get the story. We need to remember here that they did not have the internet. They did not have little smartphones with cameras and all manner of gadgets and applications on them. Even satellite dishes and satellite feeds were forbidden in the country, and Fisk would frequently mention how he would use a telex machine, a technology used from the 1930s and based on telegraphy, to get his dispatches or his articles out. Even the staff at the Intercontinental Hotel where Fisk was staying was told by the Afghan authorities not to telex anything given to them by journalists, especially news reports. Instead, Fisk would get up at four each morning, type up five copies of his latest dispatch or story, and send them with various staffers from various news agencies. But the most memorable ally of his was a local driver called Ali, who would drive passengers from Kabul, east to Jalalabad, and across the Pakistani border to Peshawar, in an old, rickety, wooden bus, on a daily basis. Fisk would hand him his dispatch article to take to Pakistan, where it was telexed there, out, on time, and without fail, despite the snowstorms and the military checkpoints. The Afghan army was instructed to stop journalists roaming around the country in cars, maybe for their safety, but most likely so they don't see too much. But they never checked Ali's old, rickety wooden bus. He was a local, so Fisk would often join Ali. He'd get off in Jalalabad and take rickshaws to the nearby villages to report on the remains and aftermath of the battles between the rebels and the Soviets before travelling back in the afternoon. Now let's take a moment here and compare that with, say, the Syrian civil war, which started in 2011 and is still ongoing. The availability of the internet and smartphones has not only allowed ordinary Syrians to be what we call citizen journalists, and to start their own media organisations, often in rivalry to the state-run media, but it has also allowed armchair investigators to quite literally build a map of what is going on in Syria, of which faction owns this little village or that strip of land, all through the use of information 
freely shared by people through the internet, or what is fancifully called open source intelligence. It is probably one of the most documented wars to date because of this, and this is why history and looking at the past is so important, and I will keep bringing up this point so I apologise in advance, but it gives you a sense of perspective and appreciation which you might not have had before. In this particular example, it may apply to younger generations who might not remember a time without the internet. But to come back to Fisk's experiences, I also mentioned in the beginning how I want to relay some of Afghanistan's beauty, and what he describes as they carry on the first of many outings during the Soviet invasion is really quite something. Above the village of Sarobi, we stopped the car. Afghanistan's landscape is breathtaking in the most literal sense of the word. Up here, the sun had burned the snow off the astonishingly light green mountain grass, and we could see for up to 50 kilometers to the Khyber Pass, to the suburbs of Jalalabad, bathed in mists. For the descent to the valley of the Indus was like walking from a snowstorm into a sauna. Hold your hand out of the window, and you could actually feel the air grow warmer. Gavin was literally bouncing on his toes as he stood by the road, looking across the panorama of ridges and mountain chains. Far to the north we could even make out the purple-white snows on top of the Pamirs. We were that close to China, and we felt, we young men, on the top of the world. I am sure that words cannot really do it justice, but what little serenity there was at the time was not long-lasting. From the very beginning of the Soviet invasion, in that first week of January, Fisk would report that Soviet soldiers would be targeted and killed in the very streets of Kabul at night. Explosions would take out the power transformers of Jalalabad, leaving it without electricity. The roads, which snake their way in between the gorges of the mountains, surrounded by higher ground, were very perilous, and the Afghan rebels in that region knew how to use them for ambushes on a near nightly basis. That same evening, when they filmed the beginnings of the Soviet invasion, Fisk and his colleagues would try to go to a military hospital, and through the iron fence, they would already see Soviet soldiers wounded, walking with sticks and crutches. What Fisk remembers most clearly is a military ambulance parked right by the loading ramp of an Aeroflot aircraft. This plane would be given a nickname by the Russians, Black Tulip, and it would carry their dead throughout the campaign. Meanwhile, Babrak Karmal's government would peddle a narrative during press conferences that their leader was chosen by the people, that the Soviet Union troops in Afghanistan were, in quotation marks, a very limited contingent, dealing with a small problem. Fisk, with his tongue-in-cheek comments throughout his book, would make it clear that he believes none of that, given what he saw with his own eyes. This so-called small problem of rebellion would drive the Soviet invasion to last for eight years. This concludes the first part. In the next, we will look at Fisk's encounter with some Soviet soldiers, as well as how he was caught up in the ambush of a Soviet convoy by Afghan rebels. It will give us an idea of what the day-to-day -day hostilities were like, but more importantly, it will provide this human element that Fisk is so known for in this book. But for now, thank you for listening.